Thanks for tuning in to Why Life Science, a podcast produced by the BYU Life Science Museum at Brigham Young University. I'm Katie Knight. And I'm Austin Lambert. Our mission here at the Life Science Museum is to inspire wonder, understanding, and reverence for our evolving planet. So with this podcast, we are here to bring you stories and interviews about life science research and projects going on in the College of Life Sciences at BYU and in the local community. Visit our website, lsm.byu.edu, for more information and to access notes from each episode. Welcome to the Why Life Science podcast uh, through the Bean Museum here at BYU. We're joined with Dr. Matt Arrington and uh, Nathan, I don't know your last name. Grooms, Nathan Grooms. Nathan Grooms, and we'll let you introduce yourself, but we're interested in talking today about uh, some of the work that they've been doing. Dr. Arrington is at the Life Science Greenhouses, doing a lot of urban agriculture and vertical farming, things like that. So, Dr. Arrington, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, and, and thanks for having us today, Austin. We're, we're glad to be here. So, I direct the Life Science Greenhouse. That's the one that's down next to Kiwanis Park. In addition to that, I'm an assistant professor in the Plant and Wildlife Science Department and teach classes in urban agriculture primarily. So sustainable agricultural production, urban agriculture. And so when you say urban agriculture, you're talking community garden. Like what exactly does that mean for someone who has no idea? So I would say anything where you're growing food crops inside of an urban setting. So that includes rooftop gardens, uh, patio or porch gardens, uh, your community gardens, as well as high-density hydroponic uh, grow facilities. So your indoor farming uh, falls under that too. And we call it CEA, which stands for Controlled Environment Agriculture. And that's all kind of under this umbrella of urban agriculture. And Nathan, do you want to introduce yourself? For sure. So I'm a student at... BYU. I study hydroponics, which is what Matt teaches, um, and I've been working with him volunteer base for the last couple of years, but finally got accepted. Uh, oh, you're getting paid now. Now I'm getting paid. <laughs> it's a great thing. <laughs> um, yeah, I love getting paid for my work, but but I work with Matt. We do some projects together. I help run the hydroponic facility, um, help TA for the, the sustainable plant systems class, and uh, really excited. I'm a senior, so I'll graduate next year, and that's really exciting um, to be able to have the opportunity to, to learn more about hydroponics before I go out into the real world. <laughs> what are you going to do when you're out in the real world? The current plan is to get a master's degree in, in either like botany, horticulture, or controlled environment agriculture, um, and eventually start my own set of farms, grow them in, in urban settings. That's what I'm really okay. excited to do. So this is part of your career path to get you going in the same direction. Absolutely. And how did you get connected with uh, Matt? Yeah, it's kind of a crazy story. So I, I met with um, with Dr. Stewart while I was working at Cook's Farm and Greenhouse. Um, and we kind of just struck up a conversation. And he mentioned that they just hired a new professor, Matt, who was running um, the greenhouse and was starting to, to branch out kind of into this urban agriculture teaching. And I was really intrigued. So I met with Matt, and it, it seemed like a really good opportunity. So I applied to BYU and eventually made it in. Oh, so that's what brought you to BYU, even. Yep. yep, Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, before that, I was at UVU and trying to do kind of urban agriculture, but there just isn't a lot happening. It is a growing industry, but it's not an industry that has a lot of teaching or learning opportunities yet. So I was really grateful that BYU and Matt were starting that. 
And Nathan was really dedicated. He was volunteering before he got accepted. So <laughs> <laughs> we've had we've had a lot of time to uh, to work together even before he was a student. Yep. Well, that's that's impressive. That kind of dedication. And then, so how did getting to BYU and being, I guess, the only person in the area that does this kind of agriculture work? How did how did that work for you, Doctor Arrington? Yeah. So I after I finished I finished my PhD work in Washington State in field agriculture and love field agriculture. But as I was looking for a position to land in, specifically wanted to be in the industry and not not in academia and stumbled on this position with Plenty, uh, which is a, a large-scale commercial hydroponic company, and just fell in love with hydroponics. And the thing that I love most about hydroponics is, one, there's a reduced barrier of entry for people who want to get involved, right? You don't need a lot of land. You don't need a lot of farming experience. You can do it in your basement or in a closet in your house, on your back porch. It's really easy. The other thing is, hydroponics and and urban agriculture have a way of addressing multiple societal issues at the same time, right? We can solve for environmental issues and social issues around food security uh, at the same time as we solve our agricultural problems or all these things and kind of group in the same basket and use the same set of solutions. And that's what was really exciting to me was we can reduce water usage. We can reduce fertilizer usage at the same time as we increase yields and reduce the distance that food travels. So most of the food in the grocery store is is traveling about, you know, an average of 2,000 miles to get to oh, wow. to your grocery store, right? And if, if you think about, like, where do the peaches and the apples come from, Washington or Georgia, uh, or blueberries, parts of the year coming from Chile, right? Food travels a long ways. And so localizing our, our food source, uh, at least as part of the solution, goes a long ways to reducing barriers to food security. That's really great. So I guess what is holding back this kind of farming? Because you're talking about how we can decrease water use and, and improve crop yields. Why isn't this what everyone is doing? Yeah, yeah. So I would say nothing is holding it back. <laughs> and part of in our class, we talk about the crazy expansion of technology that we've seen in the last 10 years, but in the last five even. When I started at Plenty, lights for example, we're, we're super inefficient. We used LED lights that were largely designed for architectural settings. They weren't, didn't have a spectrum or a color that was tuned into plants. The intensities lacked. And in five years, we've gotten to, if you, if you visit the Life Science Greenhouse, we're in the middle of upgrading all of our grow lights to high-intensity LED lights that use half the electricity and put out five times the light. Uh, as our HID lights that we used before, high-pressure sodium lights. So incredible advances in technology. I think right now it's just getting caught up, right? I mean, we've humans have been doing agriculture for 10,000 years uh, in the field, and we've had 25, 30 years of getting into this hydroponics thing. And And it uses so much technology that the biggest hurdle is training people to come into the field. That's what I was going to guess when you asked that question. I thought, I bet it's just... People don't know how to do it. Yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly right. And so that's part of why I'm so passionate about teaching and being here at BYU is we can prepare awesome students like Nathan. We have another student that we placed at Plenty uh, last year who, who does engineering. BYU has such a fantastic engineering program. It really provides an opportunity for us to kind of reach into this already developed part of BYU and tap into those students and funnel them towards urban agriculture as well. 
It's part of the reason why I love the CEA program so much is because it, it allows other students who have different interests to get into the agriculture space. Like we've got students who are interested in like bioengineering who can fit really well in this space or people who are interested in engineering or even business because uh, these type of businesses do tend to be more complex than just a traditional farm. It attracts a lot of different people, which just helps boost CEA in general. Different backgrounds probably boost this problem solving ideas and and bring different perspectives. I think that's amazing. Yeah, and to what Nathan said, I mean, we've seen growth from about a $2 billion industry in 2018 to a projection of in the next couple of years hitting $12 billion uh, for, for that indoor ag space. So a lot of money funneled in. So the business component, the size of these companies, really means that we're pulling from a lot of different fields to solve these problems. We were talking before we started recording a little bit, just it, all the food tastes better, right? <laughs> so that's a benefit as well. <laughs> that's right. And our PWS 320, which is Sustainable Plant Systems class, just yesterday we were talking about some of the critiques of indoor agriculture. And one of the things that we, we hear a lot is, oh, well, it's less nutritious or it's less flavorful. And and I we, we talk in this class about how there really are no limitations to how flavorful or how nutritious it is because we have complete control of its environment, right? Yeah. One of the research projects that, that we do deals with taking strawberries, one variety of strawberry, and changing the spectrum of light, again, that color of the light that the plant experiences, and changing the flavor of the strawberries you harvest from that plant just by changing the color of the light. Right? And so under one spectrum, you have a strawberry that tastes like fake strawberry flavoring right like it's like (laughs) like super sweet like a jam or strawberry cotton candy you change your spectrum of light and you pull a strawberry that tastes much more earthy people would describe that as like an organic flavored strawberry right or a pineapple flavored strawberry and these are just by changing that that light so you have a having complete control of the environment goes a long ways to improving nutrition and flavor wow so how does that work? How does the light control the flavor? Yeah, so the wavelengths of light in one in one sense, right? We're we're talking about photosynthesis and and the ability to produce carbohydrates, partition carbohydrates. The other role that light plays is kind of this messenger role that's activating or uh, certain genes protein production is being ramped up or down and a lot of our flavor in strawberries in particular comes from flavonoids and we can upregulate or downregulate the proteins that are synthesizing these flavonoids using specific bands of color coming from these lights. That's crazy. So Nathan then I guess what do you see as like the most exciting part about the research that you're doing? Are you part of this strawberry project as well? Well, so right now, uh, specifically me and Matt are working on still spectrums of light, but we're testing several different light fixtures that have different spectrums of light to, to, to see how different plants interact with that, see if that we can grow them faster with different flavonoids or whatnot. And, and I find that really fascinating, that, that light, because it's so abundant in field farming, we don't tend to notice it or we can't change it even in, in field farming, but in CEA and controlled environment agriculture, we can very specifically set our wavelengths and that has a very drastic change. And so that's kind of what we're, we're studying is to see if these fixed lights, because each fixed light is going to have a different spectrum based on how they're built, how they interact with the plants and whether or not we can make plants more efficient or taste better or whatnot. And to build on that, if you've ever looked on Amazon for grow lights, you'll find there's like hundreds of 
of grow lights on there, right? And they all advertise that they're the best or that they're fantastic or they put off all this light. So part of what this project with Nathan is, is looking at we companies will send us lights and we'll do efficiency testing on them. We measure part of the spectrum and then we can grow plants under them to uh, look at yield efficiency or growth kinetics under different these different fixtures. And it helps to kind of inform consumers directions that they can buy lights. These lights are good. These lights are bad. These lights don't provide enough light in the middle of the spectrum, right? A lot of times mm. we'll say chlorophyll, which is um, what's helping with photosynthesis, right, is doing most of its work in blue and red. And so some of these light companies will only make a light that shines blue and red, which looks kind of purplish, right? If you have a grow light that's purple, stay away, right? Oh. You want you want a light that's going to look white, right? And that's because it has green and yellow in the middle of the spectrum, which may not be important for photosynthesis, as important for photosynthesis, but they're really important for the signaling, the messaging that the plant is doing to produce some of these secondary metabolites that really affect flavor and nutrition. Well, I guess that means I need to get rid of my purple grow lights uh, <laughs> houseplants. <laughs> or just add some more white. <laughs> how do you communicate this? Like, how are you letting consumers know, or what's the best, yeah, just scientific communication with this, with your yeah, research? Yeah, that, that's, that's a great question. And some, you know, we, we'll target scientific literature, um, American Society of Horticulture Science is kind of our, our conference and our place. Um, and so there are papers there that are peer-reviewed. But another great tool is, is one, through our classes, through educating. We yeah. also have a number of outreach things. We can use the greenhouse as a way of reaching out to the community and part of our student plant shop in the future. So this next spring, we'll offer some classes like how to make a bonsai, uh, where oh. you can buy a kit and build a bonsai in this class, right? And so those provide opportunities to also be pushing some these of these classes this information out. are open to the public? Open to the public, yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. I want to do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But let me know as we get yeah. closer to the end of the year. Um, but then the other way is industry publications. So we look at like trade magazines, uh. Uh, some of these conventions where they're not as science-based. They're more based around these companies. And mm-hmm. those provide a lot of great ways to get involved. Nathan came with me to... Uh, indoor ag con this year that was in las vegas and we got to to meet a lot of people from different companies who develop lights or develop the racks or develop the hydroponic systems or who run these big hydroponic companies i think even on top of that um like with students we're in the works of creating a hydroponics club um, which would be open to anybody any of the students and and that's just a great way of people are like oh that seems interesting even if i don't know a lot about it and a great way to at least educate all of our students without them feeling like, oh, but I have to take a full class to learn about this. Yeah, and it, having assignments and things to mm-hmm. do, this is more fun. What are some of the things you plan to do in this club? For sure. So we, we have a, a project right now that we're working with um, with a homeless shelter, homeless community to develop and install a hydroponic system to help uh, with sustainability there, to help provide fresh fresh fruits and vegetables for them um, on a daily basis. And, and that's been a project in the works for a while, but we are we are getting close. <laughs> and that's here in Provo, that. mm-hmm. is that right? Yeah, yeah, the Food and Care Coalition here in Provo. Uh, they they just recently built uh, some apartments that are part of this new homeless housing development. And as part of that, we designed a farm for them, which they built as part of the community section of this this housing development. And 
the idea is that we'll use our hydroponics club as kind of the active arm for hydroponics at BYU to both build out this farm and then also teach the homeless community how to run it and how to be pulling produce off of it on a regular cadence to, you know, maximize efficiency and and, uh, also build skills that they can take to find real jobs outside. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. How did you get connected to the the Food and Care Coalition? We've been working on a couple of grants with uh, Gene Alborn, who's in the Nutrition and Dietetics Department. And uh, Gene was a toxicologist for USDA before coming to BYU, works a lot with nutrition and specifically um, these disadvantaged communities. And so we wrote a grant and got connected to um, to food and care, as well as to some of the Native American reservations, both in Utah and outside. So looking at like uh, the Lakota Reservation in North Dakota as well. Um, and, and so some of these projects are looking to solve food security issues uh, in some of these more rural communities where weather conditions don't exactly permit mm. consistent farming outside. Yeah. North North Dakota's, I mean, way your growing season's something like two and a half months. <laughs> yeah. So indoor agriculture takes the seasonality out of that. So if there's these big conferences about indoor agriculture, how difficult would it be for someone just here in the community to build their own hydroponic system? It's super easy. I mean, to build your own hydroponic system, because hydroponics is pretty broad. You could be talking about, you know, multi-million dollar ones like Plenty has, um, which run super efficiently and all these things. Or I built one in my backyard for like 150 bucks. Really? I mean, you, can, you can do it with just uh, some PVC and some wood and, and a pump, and, and you're good to go. So and you I, get all of that at Home Depot or absolutely, something. Absolutely, that's that's where I went, and it was pretty easy. Built it in a in an afternoon, and it's not as efficient, obviously, as some of these other high tech ones. But you can you can do it pretty easily, and it immediately has a benefit of being highly more water efficient and nutrient efficient. So, what is it that makes a hydroponic system more water efficient? Because it's in a, a recirculating loop. Most hydroponics are some some mm. aren't. But most are, so that's why we, we say it's more efficient, because if I'm constantly just recirculating my water, I've got a nice reservoir. I'll, if we're talking about like a NFT, a nutrient film technique, usually you've seen those. They kind of PVC pipes, and they run down into each other, interlock, and they just run water continuously. They empty back into the reservoir, and then I pump it back up. So the only thing I'm losing is just water that plants are naturally taking up and a little bit to evaporation. But all of that like runoff that we might see on a on a traditional farm, field farm, just gets recaptured. And so I'm super efficient because I'm not wasting water. And I'm it's less work because you don't have to actually water, right? Exactly. It I, it. For sure. My <laughs> system, it runs about once a week. So I just need to refill it once a week. So I basically wow. took my home garden and put it into a hydroponic system. And instead of having to water every two days, every three days, I'm just refilling my reservoir once a week. And what crops do you have? Um, let's see, currently I'm, I'm doing a lot of leafy greens, tend to work best, especially in smaller systems like I've got, um, but I'm doing like, like chards and strawberries because they can send their runners off and they grow down, so they work really well. Um, other crops that are bigger can be tricky, but, yeah. but CEA does offer a lot of opportunities to still grow those type of, of crops just in different ways. Fascinating. Well, I'm thinking of my friends and how would someone get the information to do this. Can they go to the greenhouse? Can they, are there YouTube videos? 
Yeah, there there are a lot of YouTube videos. Okay. Um, and, and I think that's probably the, the first place that I encourage people to look. If you're looking, if you're interested in building your own system, you can find an endless supply of DIY hydroponic systems on, on YouTube. Okay. Otherwise, the greenhouse is a great resource. Um, and, you know, especially as we get this hydroponic club up and running, uh, the ability for students to be able to teach community members how to run systems and how to get things built and how to provide some parts lists. I, I think that there's a lot of opportunity there to have crossover with the community. Yeah, I can see that being a, a huge success. And are you open to having people, if they're interested, reach out to you to come look at the greenhouse? Or People are welcome to reach out to me and and, and arrange to come and, and visit the greenhouse and see what we've got going on and talk to some of our students. You say the greenhouse, I don't know if you've been there, Katie, but they also have like tropical plant rooms. Oh, cool. And, and they have all these different like eco zones and uh, <laughs> climate rooms, I guess, each. So yeah. it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah, we really use the, the controlled environment aspect in the greenhouse. We have a sunken tree room that has plants that are planted in the in the soil rather than sitting in pots oh. on a cement floor, which allows kind of two stories of growth. Uh, there's a fountain in there and, and a lot of tropical plants. And then we have I know, a rare I know two collection. people that have gotten engaged in that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we frequently have visitors for that. <laughs> and they're still married? Everything's good? Oh, yeah, everything's good. <laughs> well, I know someone who got engaged in the elevator at the Bean Museum, but... That's probably almost as beautiful. Yeah, not probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, so... Maybe just as we wrap up, we could touch just on, I, I guess, the importance of increasing efficiency in agriculture systems and, and some of the other benefits you talked about, whereas we can, like, decrease distance to crops and, and increase availability and, and then also decrease food insecurity. I mean, why is that important to, to you and, and your research that you're both doing? Yeah, I, I would say especially looking at the world right now with the current conflicts that we have um, specifically talking about Ukraine, uh, some of the supply chain stuff coming out of our, our pandemic issues, food prices have increased. Uh, the fuel prices have increased, which affects the transport movement of food. But then additionally, global conflicts mess up the supply chain. Right? Ukraine is a top producer for sunflower oil, which ends up in almost all of our, bread products, crackers, and cereals. Uh, it's a top producer for wheat, uh, which obviously is in all of our bread products. And and so global food security for the United States, it's it's meant farming in the United States, right? And over the last 50 years, we've, we've been slipping and importing more and more. Uh, and, and what that means is that as go- global conflicts mess up our food supply, we can't get stuff, right? We've never had that problem before because we're an agrarian country. And what urban agriculture does, it says this continuing decrease in arable land and farmable land uh, isn't really a concern. We can start to farm in abandoned warehouses uh, and, and be pulling, in the case of some of these indoor farms, 10 tons of greens a month from a system mm-hmm. that uses 98% less water. Right, that's huge when you're talking about continuing drought conditions in California and Arizona and Utah. Right, every single year it seems like our drought 
issues are more and more severe. This allows us to grow more produce using less water, right? Fertilizer costs are, you know, 75% in some cases higher than they were last year because of the Ukraine-Russian crisis. And that's another area where we can use 95% less fertilizer to grow crops that yield the same amount uh, in, in a system where we have controlled, recycled uh, resources. And so from an environmental stewardship standpoint, we're able to solve a lot of problems without sacrificing on our price and availability for food. From a social standpoint, we're saying, look, people make health choices in a lot of cases based on the flavor of their food, right? Mm. I, my old boss used to say there are two kinds of people in the world, people who hate kale and people who lie about hating kale, right? <laughs> and so, so you can see that greens don't always taste good, right? But if we make them taste better by growing them in an environment where they don't develop all of these bitter compounds to fight off uh, uh. insects and cattle, then they, they taste better. It's, an, it's a lower barrier for convincing people to eat healthy, which improves quality of life, which improves the nutrition, especially talking about children. So there are, there are so many advantages on a societal level for kind of this shift. And I would I would also add, before I let Nathan chip in here, that we are not advocating a move away from field agriculture. Right? Field agriculture is a critical part of our food system. And it's this partnership between urban agriculture and field agriculture and global food supply and local food supply that creates stability in our food system. We need all of these partners to work together to be able to improve food security. And if we fight each other, right. <laughs> pitting indoor against outdoor, we, we decrease food security. It's right? not a competition. That's right. That's right. Yeah. There's plenty of room for all of us yeah. to produce tasty, nutritious food. It's just about moving the efficient ones indoors. Like currently corn gets what, 8, 10, 12 feet tall. That's pretty impractical indoors. Right. But yeah. field farming can do it really, really well. But kale, we're talking 6, 12 inches ahead maybe. And I can grow that really efficiently indoors. And so it's That's just right. about... You know, which ones are more efficient and let's move towards efficiency. Um, I'll, I'll say that personally, I grew up in, in Lehigh and Lehigh used to be really open, lots of farms, great farmland. And by the time I graduated high school, there was not a spot anywhere around me that wasn't housing. Yeah. And and that really... They built a couple new high schools probably absolutely, while you, while you absolutely. were growing up. <laughs> I, I was uh, part of that high school that, that got built um, and... And it all used to just be open land. And, and that got me thinking that there must be a better way because it really, uh, I guess, saddened me to see all of this farmland going away. And I didn't like that. And so I wanted a, a better approach. And, and luckily, I stumbled pretty accidentally upon like this program and, and learning that there is a better way that we can take care of our land, even even when we are still urbanizing. Um, on, on top of that, I think the last statistic I read is there's approximately a billion people in the world who are still food insecure. And that's a pretty scary thought. Like either calorie-wise or nutrition-wise, there's a, a lot of people in the world who don't have access to adequate food. And CEA has the opportunity to solve a lot of those problems, um, which Matt might be able to touch on this a little bit better, but there is, uh, we, we sent a few students um, to Africa, I believe. Uh, yeah, to Ghana. Mm -hmm. this, this last summer, we sent a, a group to Ghana to help build um, hydroponic 
raft systems that sit on top of an aquaponics pond. So they oh. have a pond that they cultivate fish, tilapia, and some other tropical varieties of fish as a food source and also as an income source. But predation, so birds taking fish out, the ponds getting too warm, and then having algae bloom that kills fish, that was a problem. And so creating these raft systems that are made out of recycled materials rather than expensive plastic materials that we would use as rafts in the United States for a hydroponic system. The students are teaching uh, individuals in Africa how to build them out of water bottles and twine and bamboo, right? <laughs> and so it's built using really simple materials, and it solves a critical problem to improve both the nutrition that people have. Because Nathan hit on a great point, like food security is a huge issue, but it's not the same issue that it was in the 40s or the 50s, right? We don't have starving people we we do have starving people we don't have as many people who lack calories anymore who are mm. who are dying of starvation instead we have is millions and millions and millions of people who are lacking nutrients and as a result have permanent disabilities blindness from vitamin a deficiency uh issues with their heart and their and their lungs because of uh, anemia and so these nutrient deficiencies become a much more severe issue and that's an issue that urban agriculture is much better suited to solve, right? It's hard to bring, like we said, corn or wheat indoors, right? They're just so efficient outside. It's really easy to bring dark green chard or kale inside and be able to solve anemia issues, right? And so it's it's just a matter of picking the tools to solve the correct problem. Dr. Belk in biology does the fish component of this project and he and his wife sponsor this um, a school for disabled children uh, in Africa and that's where we we've applied this project we have students presenting findings at the president's leadership council I want to say this week or uh, maybe it's next month there are a lot of organizations out there that do work in sub-saharan Africa specifically around agriculture but a lot of those solutions don't pack the same punch because we're trying to apply Western culture onto sub-Saharan Africa. And in a lot of cases, there's not infrastructure uh, or culturally it doesn't match up correctly. Right. Whereas we're applying a solution that uses materials that are already there, that uses systems that are already there, that takes advantage of the, you know, the, the hand-eye availability of these, these people to, to solve their own problem, right? Yeah. To, to use a little bit of additional knowledge, uh, and and be really self-sufficient and to give them the confidence to do this that's right that's right on their own yeah yeah that's what i was wondering is there some kind of article of publication that we could put in our show notes about this because it's really yeah. cool and if people are interested in getting involved in any of these hydroponic projects that we've mentioned or the dozen other ones that we haven't talked about feel free to reach out to me happy to have students that are passionate get actively engaged awesome well, thank you so much, both of you, for joining us and, and sharing all of your experiences and knowledge with us. And yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah, of course. It was a pleasure. Yeah.